You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number one, a stranger. There is a wooden corner shelf in the alcove just behind the telly. A pointless impulse buy from B&Q, neither big enough to hold a houseplant, nor small enough to go unnoticed. On it sits a pot lid that once belonged to my great-grandfather Avrom. There was a time when if you bought any face cream, hair preparation, toothpaste or fish paste, in fact anything of a creamy or pasty consistency, it very likely came in a squat china pot. The lid usually featured the name of the maker and product, as it would on any modern packaging. In time, these would be enhanced by ever more decorative reproductions of paintings, some famous, some less so, and by the middle of the last century, pot lids were collector's items. Some connoisseurs refer to them as Prattware, after Pratt & Co., the Stoke factory mainly responsible for manufacturing them. But most collectors call them pot lids, even if they come with the base. By the mid-1960s, there were clubs, societies and magazines for devotees to swap duplicates and maybe find the holy grail for all collectors a pot lid bearing a reproduction of Washington crossing the Delaware. There were even a few celebrity collectors, among them Leslie Crowther and the wrestler Mick McManus. That the latter's infamous feud with Jackie Pallow was over the disputed ownership of a rare 1871 Burns Cottage pot lid is, of course, pure conjecture. The example on the corner shelf isn't a grail, holy or otherwise. It depicts a crudely drawn cartoon of two shabby men playing poker, one of them clearly holding an extra ace under the table in anticipation of cheating his opponent. Underneath is the caption, I was a stranger and you took me in, a pun on Matthew chapter 25, verse 35. My parents had a sideline in the antiques business and an abiding love of practically anything old but they never particularly liked this pot lid, despite its place among the personal effects of my father's beloved grandpa, Avrom. When I was about eight, it ended up in a box destined for the Oxfam shop, until I rescued it at the last minute, because I liked the picture of the two poker players. It held World Cup coins, picture cards, and other boyish stuff, kept for no particular reason. Through my late teens and twenties, it became a useful repository for the precious eighth of lead or gram of sulphate which lubricated my social life. Later on, it sat on my desk holding postage stamps, torn off phone numbers and business cards. Today, it contains my daily blood pressure tablets. My great-grandparents, Avrom and Shandl, grew up and got married in the Black Seaport of Odessa, a city then noted for its large and vibrant Jewish ghetto. Avrom completed a long military service as required of all Jewish men living in Tsarist Russia and then made a precarious living as a journeyman cigarette maker. Tsar Nicholas was then the absolute ruler of Russia and he presided over a brutally repressive government which reserved a lot of that brutality for the Jewish population. Historians have been relatively kind to him, partly because the Germans and Russian rulers who came after were often worse, 
and partly because of the terrible end suffered by the entire Russian royal family. However, for Jews at the sharp end of his rule, their main concern was how to get as far away as possible from Tsar Nicholas. Salvation for Avram and Shandel came in the form of a boat. In 1898, word went out that a ship docked in Odessa was bound for Scotland where they were desperate to employ skilled cigarette makers at the WD and HO Wills factory in Glasgow and at a weekly wage beyond Avron's wildest dreams. Waving goodbye to their families forever, they made the long journey to Glasgow and a job making gold flake and woodbines, only for Avron to be sacked a few weeks later. It transpired that the factory was on the receiving end of a long-running dispute, and someone had the bright idea of bringing in cheap foreign labour to keep production going. But the unions and management eventually got round the table to settle the strike, and now Avron, in a strange country where he didn't speak a word of English, and with a young wife to support, was jobless. Somehow they found other work, moved south to a cold-water flat in London's East End, and raised five children. He was naturalised as a UK citizen in 1920, and was delighted when Russia and Britain became allies in 1941. Old and practically blind, he spent the war eagerly tuning in from one radio station to the next, only complaining when the newsreader mispronounced a Russian place name. My father used to tell me of the loud political arguments that sometimes erupted during family get-togethers. In common with many Jews of my grandparents' generation, Avram's children and their partners were educated and mostly on the left, the nascent metropolitan elite we hear so much about today. But my great-grandpa saw the world in less nuanced terms. He genuinely couldn't understand why in a country without czars and pogroms, where we were free to peacefully vote out rulers we didn't like, they didn't get on their knees in gratitude for being born British. This was a land of plenty, where a small china pot of fish paste with a dodgy illustration was a trifle, not a luxury. This was a land where, despite his inauspicious arrival, despite the hardships, despite even the latent anti-Semitism of the British establishment, he and Shandle prospered albeit modestly. By the end of 1943, the German occupation had completely wiped out Odessa's Jewish ghetto. It wasn't simply a massacre. It was, as their conquerors planned, intended to leave no evidence that an entire community ever existed. But a questionable job offer, as unwitting scab labour, ensured Avrom and Shandl's safety. And, by extension, it ensured mine. He was a stranger, and you took him in. That was A Stranger, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you like this podcast, then please subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, 
a podcast about random objects from the past. Number two, John Major, my part in his downfall. A glass paperweight with pen holder bearing the livery and name of Mori, the polling and market research company. There must be a useful thesis waiting to be written about the social history of Britain through the medium of the marketing freebie. For instance, a few years ago, it was hard to visit any office or conference without leaving with a logoed USB memory stick. Go back a few years and it was little pocket calculators on keyrings. It's for this reason that over the years I accumulated a much too large collection of mouse mats, golfing umbrellas, pens, shot glasses and those little rubbery squashy things which are supposed to relieve stress. For any actor or performer not called Bill Nye or Olivia Coleman, it is highly likely that they will sometimes encounter lean times which require other gainful, non-artistic employment to fill the gap. This is how, in 1995, I landed at Morrie Telephone Research at their office in Stratford, East London. After a short time calling members of the general public to see if they trusted John Gummer more than Malcolm Rifkind, I was kicked upstairs to work as a coder. The work mainly involved knocking raw results into shape before management crunched the numbers for whoever commissioned the survey. At lunchtime, on the 12th of December 1995, I was alone in the office with a sandwich, while everyone else enjoyed a team-building session in the pub. That day, a survey was in progress amongst MPs about proposed changes in fuel supply regulations. The phone rang, and I was the only one there to pick it up. A well-spoken lady introduced herself. Hello there, this is David Lightbound's secretary. You called earlier, and he is ready to take your survey. I'll just transfer you over. I had no option but to reluctantly bring the questionnaire up on my screen, and go through it on the fly. Good afternoon, Sir David, I said once I'd been put through. It's a five-minute questionnaire amongst MPs on behalf of British Gas. Do you have time to take the survey now? Get on with it, he grunted. So, first of all, can I just confirm that you are the MP for South East Staffordshire? Of course I am. What kind of idiot question is that? I went on. An amendment has been made to the Gas Utilities Bill. Are you aware of this amendment? You're just a moron reading out a load of random words. I cannot speak for others, but quite early on in adulthood, possibly during my time working behind the bar of a rough East End pub, I developed a personality trait, which meant that the more irrationally angry and rude people became, the more friendly and welcoming I automatically became in return. It often had the added bonus of making genuine bullies become even angrier. And do you expect to vote on this amendment, Sir David? That's none of your bloody business, he yelled. Do you think I intend to discuss this with an ignorant little pipsqueak like you? On it went, with Lightbound getting ruder and angrier at each question, while I became ever friendlier. Because of his impotent attempts at bullying, the survey lasted three times its normal length, and by the time it ended, he was screaming down the phone at me like a disgruntled Virgin Media customer. 
I thanked him for his time and he hung up without a goodbye. The survey was over. Thankfully. The next day, I read the following headline in the office copy of the Times. Tory MP's death puts seat at risk. The government was last night facing the likelihood of its Commons majority being cut to three in the new year after the sudden death of the senior backbencher Sir David Lightbourne. Sir David, MP for Staffordshire South East, died after collapsing at the varsity rugby match at Twickenham. He was 63. His majority of 7,192 over Labour at the last election looks highly vulnerable and many Conservative MPs accept that they will lose the seat. Understandably, because I was one of the last members of the Great Unwashed to speak to him, Lightbound and his career now fascinated me and I pored over every news report I could find. The obituaries came stuffed with words like redoubtable and phrases like didn't suffer fools gladly, all the usual euphemisms employed by journalists not wishing to speak ill of the dead, or at least not until the body was cold. But there was more to it. The same papers universally described him as either portly or a bear of a man, and the deep, dark question I couldn't help asking myself was, did I kill him? Did my playfully over-friendly reaction to his accelerating rage weaken the walls of a few strategically placed blood vessels just enough to send a morbidly obese MP on his way a few hours later? Any guilt I may have felt about his untimely death rapidly dissipated when I read his Times obituary in particular, the following. He was a tough man outside the Commons. One constituent claimed that when she told him she was so distraught that she was going to throw herself from the window, Lightbound replied, If you're going to jump out of the window, jump out of your own window at home, not out of mine. But the bigger picture was that Major's majority in the House of Commons now stood at three leaving his status as Prime Minister against the rising stars of Tony Blair and New Labour ever shakier. Worse still, his heavily divided government was now without one of its most loyal and brutal whips, one who could always be depended upon to use strong-arm tactics to keep recalcitrant backbenchers in line. Just under a year later, Major's majority that stood at 23 after the 1992 election, was reduced to zero when the veteran MP for Hendon, Sir John Gorst, resigned from the party. And we all know what happened next. I like to think I played a small but significant part in Major's political demise, and I'm still waiting for the phone call from Tony Blair to thank me. The fact that he hasn't bothered to get in touch stands as yet another example of the optimism of May 1997 squandered, with New Labour neglecting the ignorant little pipsqueaks like me who helped them into power. That was John Major, My Part in His Downfall, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you like this podcast, then please subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time.
You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number three, Scandal. A small round metal tin that once very briefly held 50 grams of royal beluga caviar. It was a birthday present from my sister-in-law about a decade ago, and Anita and I ate the lot on Ritz crackers that evening in front of the telly. Like oysters and mum champagne, the main appeal of caviar is that it is very expensive. I love the stuff, but have to admit that in a blind tasting, I wouldn't be able to distinguish it from the black lumpfish roe, the fake stuff, available from any supermarket for a couple of quid. My paternal grandfather, Alf Diamond, ran away from home in his teens and learned bookkeeping at evening classes while living in a Whitechapel hostel for the homeless. After carving out a career in the 1920s, he fell victim to the Great Depression. He was unemployed and struggling to keep his young family from the poorhouse. But from the mid-1930s, things improved. He joined the retail tailoring firm Dax Simpson, and within a decade or two, he rose to become the company's financial director. As a brand, Dax was, and is, an international byword for taste and style the finest quality ready-to-wear clothes for any gentleman whose means didn't quite run to an account at Savile Row. A Dax three-piece suit from their flagship Simpsons department store on Piccadilly told the world that you had arrived. I still have my father's one, hanging unworn for years in my wardrobe, and if I can just get my waist measurement down an inch or two, I might try it on again one day. In late 1961 a discreet memo arrived on Grandpa's desk at their Stoke Newington factory. The government of the Soviet Union was looking at the possibility of importing Dax suits for privileged officials and party members. But before any negotiation on price or quality began, they would need to road test some samples. To this end, the Soviet embassy sent one of their senior diplomatic staff along for a fitting. He was very pleased with his suit and a half-kilo pot of beluga caviar, along with a litre of Stolishnaya vodka, arrived the next day for Grandpa. A small gesture of thanks. My grandparents' taste in food extended no further than chopped liver or meat and two veg, so long as one of the veg was red pickled cabbage. Similarly, their alcohol consumption began and ended with repulsive Paul Wynne's kosher dessert wine drunk once a year at Passover. This meant that they immediately passed the caviar and vodka on to my grateful parents. Another week, another memo from the embassy. The Soviet people were grateful for the generosity and fraternity shown to them by the skilled workers of Dax Simpson. In addition, would it be possible for another of their representatives this time their defence attaché, a Captain Ivanov, to come along for another fitting, just to doubly ensure that the Soviet Trade Ministry would be making the right decision. Oh, and if possible, a grey pinstripe with spare trousers and extra darting on the waistcoat would be nice. Another caviar and vodka thank you arrived. The trickle of Soviet officials visiting the Stoke Newington factory soon became a deluge, along with the same tokens of gratitude. Now, Grandpa was nobody's fool. 
he knew that Soviet embassy staff were using their position to get tailored freebies, just as they were probably doing at Harrods, Fortnum and Mason and their nearest Jaguar dealership. But this was at the height of the Cold War and the board of Dax Simpson saw how indulging some light iron curtain related grifting might pay dividends once international relations thawed. Meanwhile, my parents contended with a different issue. By mid-1962, they had a cupboard stuffed with caviar and vodka. Like the Rockefellers and Gettys before them, I imagine they found out in the most pleasant way possible that a little sturgeon rogue goes a long way. The problem was that the stuff keeps for years until opened, but then needs to be consumed on the day, and half a kilo is a lot of caviar. At the time, we were living in a two-bedroom council flat in Hackney, and my parents were struggling to keep my heads above water. Mum once told me of the Sunday night when they had no food in the house except half a packet of cream crackers and a lot of black fish eggs, and by this time they were sick of the stuff. The Dax Freebies, the caviar and the vodka came to a sudden and unexplained halt in January 1963 for reasons which would later become clear. As is well known, in 1961, the Secretary of State for War, John Profumo, began a torrid affair with Christine Keeler. This might have stayed hidden as just another posh dalliance, were it not for the fact that Ms Keeler was also sharing her bed with Eugene Ivanov, a Soviet spy and proud owner of a Dax three-piece suit. Soviet intelligence got wind of the coming scandal long before it broke in the tabloids and immediately recalled Ivanov along with nearly all their embassy staff to avoid any international incident so soon after the Cuban Missile Crisis. In a textbook example of the butterfly effect, John Profumo's inability to keep it in his trousers resulted in the inhabitants of a Hackney council flat no longer enjoying a surfeit of Russian luxury goods. I still remember a few tins of beluga being around until the mid-1960s. I tried a spoonful at the age of around five or six, but my then immature palate decided it wasn't for me. Grandpa retired in 1970 and died in 1978. In the early 1990s, a Japanese company acquired Dax Simpson and moved production overseas. The Piccadilly department store and the Stoke Newington factory are now, respectively, the flagship branch of Waterstones and a self-storage facility. John Profumo spent several blameless decades running Toynbee Hall Settlement in East London, where I briefly met him during the 1980s, a living relic of a time when ministers still resigned if they were caught lying to Parliament. I didn't mention the caviar. Black Lumpfish Row is available at all good branches of Lidl. That was Scandal, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then don't forget to like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time.
You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number four, the writer. In one of the unmarked boxes from my parents' house, I found a cast photo. The handwriting on the back tells me it's from Turn It Up, a stage review which played at Unity Theatre in Islington in the early 1950s. There's my dad standing in the front row in costume wearing a false moustache. The set designer, my mum, cowers in the back row, always quite camera shy. And at the front, dead centre, stands the writer of the show, his enormous grin telling the world, I did this! You can't miss him. I'm sure I'm not alone in getting a slight shiver when first encountering an old family photo. Perhaps it's the sensation of seeing familiar people in unfamiliar situations, frozen in time decades before. This one is a professionally taken pin-sharp group shot that tells me how, even though it was an amateur setup, Unity Theatre approached everything with the dedication and skill of a major repertory company. Founded in 1936, Unity is something of a footnote in the history of modern performance. Long before the days of political fringe theatre, it was introducing new radical writers to London audiences, many now regarded on a par with Ibsen or Chekhov. It's thanks to Unity that British theatre-goers first discovered the plays of Bertolt Brecht, Sean O'Casey, Jean-Paul Sartre, Clifford Odets, the list goes on. Then there are the actors, among them Bill Owen, Bob Hoskins, Warren Mitchell, most of the future cast of Emergency Ward 10, Even Paul Robeson played there for a season. Not bad for a shabby left-wing theatre under constant special branch surveillance. Turn It Up was typical of the satirical reviews produced by Unity. And as usual, it came in for a lot of internal flack from the more hardline politicos in the company, all of whom thought theatre existed primarily to extol the virtues of Marxist-Leninism but the ticket sales for such light-hearted fare said otherwise, proving that the Noel Coward tendency will always trump the militant tendency when it comes to bums on seats. It was at Unity that my parents got together. By this time, my father was in his twenties, out of uniform, and continuing with his studies at Chelsea Polytechnic. Because of the war and its effect on the education system, Mum finished school in 1943, aged 13, and immediately started as a scholarship art student at St Martin's College, thrown into a bohemian demimonde fully deserving its own chapter elsewhere. She joined Unity because she wanted to act, but on discovering that she was a trained artist, they instead put her to work painting sets and backdrops. A little later, she brought along an eccentric friend and fellow St Martin's alumnus to help out. The fellow in the photo with the enormous grin. This big mouth soon made the change from paint pot to typewriter when he impressed the company with his songs and sketches. Turn It Up was his first full show. He later moved on to Joan Littlewood's company at Stratford East and found yet more success as a jobbing songwriter. First for Billy Cotton, before hitting it big with Tommy Steele in 1956. It was around this time that my parents, now married with two kids, had him over for dinner. 
He wanted mum and dad to hear some of his new stage material, having lugged a reel-to-reel tape recorder to their tiny flat in Stoke Newington. Over coffee, dad offered some constructive criticism and suggested a few changes. And after more discussion, the writer said to dad, Paul, you're full of bright ideas. How about you and me write a show together? My dad thought about it for a moment. He now had a young family to support and a steady day job as a biochemist. Us, write a show together, he said. Do me a favour. And that, gentle listener, is how my father passed up the opportunity to collaborate on a stage musical with Lionel Bart. In time, this exchange between Dad and Lionel achieved something of a life of its own as a kind of family in-joke. My parents would always say, do me a favour, to each other, as well as their three sons, if it looked as if we were about to turn down the chance to do anything creative, lucrative, or simply for the fun of it. And over the years, this backhanded entreaty to Carpa Diem worked well for my brothers and me. As is now common knowledge, the career of Lionel Bartz became a byword for showbiz success before descending into a morass of showbiz excess. For a while he had the Midas touch, writing number ones and creating hit musicals, most notably Oliver, before hitting the buffers with a catastrophic flop called Twang. Within a few years he was bankrupt, alcoholic and Britain's oldest acid casualty. But Oliver remains a classic with regular major revivals. It was for one such revival in 1994 that my actor friend Ollie went to audition. For some reason, he didn't want to sing a number from any familiar show as his audition piece, choosing instead a song I'd written a few years earlier, a satire on East End gentrification sung by a yuppie Ariviste affecting to be a Cockney geezer. In other words, a thumbs in lapels, have a banana skit, in the style of Lionel Bart. Ollie's audition was politely received, and a neutral voice told him he had made it to the next round. Then another older voice called out from somewhere in the darkened auditorium. What was that song? It's called Riff Raff, said Ollie. Who wrote it? Matthew Diamond. Matthew Diamond? Never heard of him. Cameron McIntosh had drafted Lionel in as a production consultant to do some rewrites on Oliver and sit in on auditions and rehearsals in exchange for a decent fee and a share of the gross. This worked well for everyone, including Lionel, who long after selling the rights to stave off bankruptcy, hadn't received a royalty from the show for decades. He was still an occasional visitor, Shea Diamond, through the 1960s, so I could reasonably counter that he had heard of me. The last time I saw Lionel was when my mother sold him a bronze statue of Quasimodo, the hunchback of Notre Dame. He was rewriting and revising a musical based on Victor Hugo's masterwork, naturally entitled Hunch, hoping it would restore the creative mojo he lost after the disaster of Twang. The statue sat in his office as inspiration, but despite many attempts, Hunch remained unperformed in public until 2013, over a decade after his death. From a distance, 
My father's rejection sometimes looks like a sliding doors moment that robbed me of a childhood spent hanging out with the Beatles, or at the very least babysat by Alma Cogan. But I am also aware from experience that most artistic collaborations come to nothing and history only records the successes. If he had written a musical with Lionel, my dad might have seen his name in lights on Broadway. So do I still think he was wrong to take up Lionel's offer? Do me a favour. That was The Writer, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this podcast, then don't forget to hit subscribe and like on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 5. The Crown A five-shilling coin, a crown, commemorating the life of Winston Churchill, sits in a drawer under my desk. It used to have its own transparent hard plastic case, long since lost. Which is a shame, as this also means it's no longer in mint condition. So instead of being worth over £100, it is probably, with inflation, worth less than its original face value. I don't remember much about Churchill when he was alive, mainly because I was only five at the time of his death. Today he is revered as the godhead figure who supplied our lion's roar during World War II. But even though he got a full state funeral on his death, I cannot find much evidence of this reverence during the two decades he lived after VE Day. It is a matter of record that Sir Winston Churchill never won the popular vote in a general election. As is well known, he took over from the car crash of Neville Chamberlain's late premiership in 1940, and then lost by a landslide in 1945. And even though the Conservatives were re-elected in 1951, after Attlee's government ran out of road, the latter not only got the highest vote nationally, but, up until that point, the largest popular vote ever. I'm sure there's something of great significance to be gleaned from all this, but cannot for the life of me tell what it might be. The 1950s vintage Churchill comes over as a bit of an old duffer, an imperial throwback whose time had passed. It was almost as if there were two Churchills, the legend and the man, living side by side. As the former, he was always treated with the utmost respect and reverence, but when it came to the man, even his own party viewed him as a spent fossil, and eventually had to drag him kicking and screaming from number 10 to make way for a young, thrusting, 57-year-old called Anthony Eden. The perceived certainties of World War II, set against the moral roller coaster of today, have required us to canonise not just Churchill, but a whole generation of mortal human beings to an extent way beyond their appeal in the years when hostilities were still fresh in people's minds. Take Vera Lynn. 
Since her death in 2020, she is forever locked in our collective psyche as the force's sweetheart, whose lilting ballads kept the nation warm during the long winter of bombings, rationings and telegrams to the next of kin. This doesn't tally with my first knowledge of Vera during the early 70s, when she was simply one of many singers belting out Tire Yellow Ribbon and Snowbird on crappy TV variety shows. The first time I ever heard of Churchill was at my primary school. On the morning of the 30th of November, 1964, I sat cross-legged on the floor in the assembly hall of Tyson Mixed Infants in Hackney. By then, I was used to the tradition of our headmistress, Miss Fisher, announcing, after our spirited rendition of When a Knight Won His Spurs, the birthdays. It's Ronnie Zuckerman's birthday today, so what do we all say? Many Abbey Day, we all replied in a chaotically sing-song manner. And Ronnie is six, so what do we all do? What we did was collectively clap in unison whilst counting to six. Don't knock it. Every kid in the room enjoyed this way of practising our counting skills. But on this particular November day, Miss Fisher's parish announcements took an unexpected turn. We are celebrating a very special day today. Can any little boy or girl tell me whose it is? There was silence. Come now, it's someone your mummies and daddies might know very well. Anyone? A few hands went up at the back of the hall where the older kids sat. Miss Fisher pointed to one of the hands. You, Rachel. Is it Sir Winston Churchill, miss? Sir Winston was a name new to me. I had never heard of anyone called Sir Winston and was intrigued as to why this was a name and why it was important. Well done. It's a very important birthday because Sir Winston Churchill is 90. So what do we all say? Many happy day. Miss Fisher was not done yet. To wish Sir Winston a proper happy birthday, we will all now give him 90 claps. At the age of five, I was not a maths prodigy. I could definitely count to 10, maybe even 20, but until then had no reason to think of many numbers beyond six, which happened to be the standard price in old pennies of a two-pack Milky Way. But the ordeal began anyway. Wah! Two, three, four, five. On it went. Twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine. By the time we got to the forties, our delicate, uncalloused hands were feeling the sting from so much clapping. In addition, I doubt whether many of us had ever counted this far. Most of us could see how the logic of this worked, but many, particularly the tiny children towards the front, were by now either miming or burbling incoherently as the numbers crept towards the old man's age, all of us wishing and hoping it would end. It's finished with more of a whimper than a bang. Even the teachers standing by the walls around the hall looked relieved, a few managing to hold on to their rictus grins as they thankfully reached the magic number. The following January, Less than three months after Churchill hit 90, he died. On the 30th of January, 1965, 
his state funeral took place, the beginning of the legend succeeding the man. This was the first state funeral for a commoner since that of Lord Carson thirty years earlier. Why Carson, the lawyer responsible for prosecuting Oscar Wilde, received this honour is open to question, but a quick look at non-royals receiving state funerals shows the list to be strangely random. There are admittedly some obvious candidates. Few would question the importance of Isaac Newton, Horatio Nelson, or the Duke of Wellington at the time of their death. Edith Cavill's honour in 1919 was a mawkish but understandable piece of post-war propagandising. But Lord Napier of Magdala? Earl Roberts of Kandahar? Students of the great game may know of them, but I doubt whether many others do. Richard Dimbleby provided a suitably hushed BBC commentary on the day. Such was the importance and gravity of the occasion that all children's television was cancelled. To my dismay, neither Fred Barker nor Ollie Beak were any match for Sir Winston. How inconsiderate of him. That was The Crown, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this story, then don't forget to like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time.